Some months ago, we had the pleasure of interviewing author Gerald Nachman about his book on the legendary Ed Sullivan. It was titled Right Here on Our Stage Tonight. We recommend you check out our archives if you missed that one, and we certainly recommend the book to you. As it turns out, Gerald Nachman has two other books we'd like to talk to him about, one on the subject of comedy, the other on the golden age of radio. Today, we hope to talk comedy, specifically Mr. Nachman's Seriously Funny, the rebel comedians of the 1950s and 1960s. The comedy of today is substantially different from what was practiced by comedians of prior generations. What is standard fare in a comedy club or TV today was unthinkable not so long ago. Things all changed in the Eisenhower and Kennedy eras. These days, topical subjects are routinely satirized by the likes of The Daily Show, Colbert Report, and Saturday Night Live, but it wasn't always so. It took a number of entertainers pushing the comedy world in this direction to arrive where we are today. The tale of how this happened is outlined in Seriously Funny, and it's a tale we're keen to explore with the author. We're pleased to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Gerald Nachman. Well, I'm glad to be back. Thank you. Well, you start the book by talking about Mort Saul debuting at San Francisco's Hungry Eye in about 1953. And uh, Mort Saul is a name that sadly may not be so well known to many of our younger listeners, but he clearly is the guy with which to start the discussion. Can we talk about uh, what Mort Saul did that was so different? Everything. He looked different. He sounded different. His content was different. He came on, you know, in those days, a comedian would come out in a tuxedo and a ruffled shirt and... Uh, maybe a gold chain, you know, and a, and a, and a bow tie. And, and, you know, they look like Mater D's. <laughs> and uh, Mort Saul came out. He's just like, uh, he had a V-neck uh, sweater and uh, slacks and loafers. He looked like uh, anybody. He just had an intellectual sound and his references, his content, the subjects he talked about, political. It wasn't just political. He's now remembered as a political satirist. And he was primarily that, but he also talked about uh, cultural trends, social trends, all kinds of hypocrisy, uh, stuff, as you said, that we kind of take for granted with John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and people like that and Bill Maher. Bill Maher, I think, is the natural heir to uh, Saul in terms of his outrageousness and his willingness to take on anything uh, in a very bold style. And um, so that was the, that's why Saul led the way. He was just different in every, in every way. I think it's curious that the sort of stand-up stuff he was doing kind of meshed with this sort of beat poets of the era and folk music of the era. They were performing in some of the same venues, and, and he wasn't necessarily going for a barrel of laugh, but, but, but just to make people think as well. Exactly, exactly. Of course, he was funny. He was incredibly smart and quick, and he made such salient points that, you know, you had to laugh. He was, But he wasn't. He didn't come out of the, the Catskill or Miami tradition. He wasn't there, you know, his, all the material he wrote was stuff that came out of his head. He didn't buy jokes. He never bought a joke in his life. <laughs> he never stole a joke that I'm aware of. And it was just, it was all him. It was what was in his head and what he was making, he was talking about things he really cared about. You know, comedians in those days were talking, were not making those kind of comments. They were just trying to get a laugh. For him, a laugh was kind of a byproduct. And I'd like to also acknowledge uh, that uh, that San Francisco had a very important role to play. The nightclubs in the city were uh, where a lot of this rebellion took place in this era, and I guess you witnessed some of that firsthand as a college student. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was going to uh, San Jose State University then, and I would venture into the city and go to the Hungry Eye and uh, and and the and the, uh, the Purple Onion. You'd go downstairs; it was like a cavern, a mine shaft, 
sort of, you go down these very steep stairs, downstairs into a basement, and there was a and there was a hungry eye, which is really a very pleasant place to be. You sat in directors' chairs. The whole venue was different than what people thought of in that era, which were which they were so unlike the usual nightclub, which was, you know, overpriced and uh, and you had to get all dressed up, you know, just cost an arm and a leg, and and they had a dance band. It was just none of that it was in these kind of uh, sort of dens in a way. And they, as you say, they they started they started as kind of folk singing venues and poetry readings and, you know, the beatnik era, they came out of that. We should note in passing, too, that uh, Herb Cain had something to, to do with a lot of these people kind of publicizing them and helping things along. Well, yeah, well, of course, he was interested in anything that was new and that was uh, hip and that was uh, of San Francisco, and Saul was all of that. And he gave Saul a huge boost. Without Cain, he might not have ever made it. You, you know, he needed, Cain uh, had uh, you know, tremendous power in those days in the San Francisco Chronicle, and uh, he, he could anoint anyone, and he he would he would plug him, and he was he would use his lines, and uh, he be, he was really the, uh, the 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 kingmaker in those days, and uh, he really made Saul uh, the king of comedy, to, to to not coin a phrase. <laughs> well, Mort Saul, I guess, got in the cover of Time magazine, certainly changed things, shook shook things up, but his career kind of hit the skids in the late sixties, and he decided that the public had been lied to about. Uh, the murder of John Kennedy, which is a viewpoint I'm certainly totally in sympathy with, but he, he really turned angry about that, and that uh, that hurt him. Yeah, he lost a lot of, of his traction in his career, and uh, he took he took uh, I don't know two or three years off to go to work for the the uh, Jim Jim Garrison in New Orleans, who had launched this investigation to prove that the Warren Commission was was false and that it was not Lee Harvey Lee Harvey Oswald. It was a conspiracy and. Saul got all involved in that, and it really hurt his career. And uh, he would go on stage when he did perform with the Warren Report, 24 volumes or whatever it was, and he would talk about that. People wanted to forget that. They were, they were not going to nightclubs. They were not going to hear him to hear about the, the, the Kennedy assassination. So he really lost a lot of, of, uh, of momentum, and he never quite regained it all. He was, in 1960s, you say, he was on the cover of Time Magazine, and the only other comedian who only who had ever been on the cover of Time, I think, was uh, uh, Will Rogers, possibly Milton Berle in the early days of television. His career certainly declined, but three years ago I went to L.A. There was an event uh, commemorating his 80th birthday. I was awfully glad I attended. There was this remarkable array of top-tier talent who turned out to honor uh, Mort Saul. Jay Leno called him the greatest man in the world, and it's kind of nice that in his, in his late years he's still you know being, he's back being revered again. Yeah, he is. He still performs a few times a year. He's performing in Marin County down here uh, every so often. He and Dick Gregory do a do a show. He's going to be 83, and, you know, he's gotten older, and uh, but he's, his mind is still sharp, and he moved back to the Bay Area. He, he lived in L.A. most all of his life, really, until uh, till recently. So he's up here, and I hope we can see more of him. I, I went to lunch with him uh, about a month ago, and, uh, you know, it was just great to see him not as a journalist or as a critic, but as just a guy who appreciated him, you know, the way Leno does and the way he he's really the godfather of modern comedy. There's no question about it. And I just want to note, too, that even though you have lunch with him, he did turn you down for an interview for your book, <laughs> and he's turned us down for the show, so I felt a little bit better about that. He did turn you down, eh? Yeah, yeah twice, well, yeah. Oh, well, that's too bad. Well, he later apologized because he ended up on the cover of the book. <laughs> And because he was the first and the most significant of that era, 
but he later apologized and he said, I, I made my usual, I, I make mistakes like this all the time. And <laughs> I had reviewed him over the years many times and uh, interviewed him. And we had a good relationship, you know, weren't friends or anything, but, uh, and I was shocked when he said, no, he didn't want to do it. He said kind of half-kiddingly, uh, why don't you write a book about me? <laughs> and uh, he didn't want to be, quote, in there with all those other guys, because he, he thinks he's a cut above, and he, he kind of was in a way for a long time. Well, another a name that our listeners are probably more familiar with is that of Lenny Bruce. Uh, the fact that he was arrested for supposedly doing obscene material put him in kind of a cultural crossfire in America. And you quote Dick Gregory at one point saying about him, if they don't kill him, throw him in jail. He's liable to shake up the whole country. You note that all three, in fact, happened. Yes, that's right. Unfortunately, uh, he didn't survive. He got wrapped up in, in his legal uh, entanglements and uh, never recovered. And, of course, he was, uh, he was a drug addict, and all that stuff just took him down, and he didn't survive. He died at, I think, I don't know, 39 or something. You know, there's a famous movie with Dustin Hoffman. I, I I never seen it because I've seen some performances and heard them, and they say that it's really just not true to Lenny Bruce at all. No, I don't think it is at all. I think the facts are interesting, and it's a good movie, but it's uh, he doesn't suggest Lenny Bruce at all. As a friend of mine said, uh, Dustin Hoffman, the problem with Hoffman is he's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a good attempt to, you know, memorialize him, and uh, it, but it just doesn't work. Bruce was one of a kind. I never actually saw him in, in his heyday, and he's unfortunately remembered just for being dirty, but, you know, the foul language and all that stuff and that profanity was in was really uh, part of a larger picture, a larger satirical picture, and he was just talking the way he did, you know, offstage, which, is, which was a huge breakthrough, and now comedians come along and think if they can be dirty, that's all they need to be to get a laugh, and unfortunately that tends to be true much too often you know they don't have any uh, any vision of the world the way bruce did they don't have any real satirical insights uh so that's that's i think he should be remembered more for that than for the language i've heard too that uh, at least in the early days he was a wild man covered lots of different topics would crack up the band and was really kind of an insider's comic well he was in a way although people wanted to be inside so they went to see him and they a lot of people would laugh even though they made you know, uh, privately disapprove of the language. And if you can break up the band, that's usually thought of as the as a high water mark because the band, is, you know, band is known to be jaded and uh, not easily uh, <laughs> not easily moved to laugh right. laughter. But uh, but he but he was one of them in a way. He 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 hung out with musicians. He he came up through you know, Bruce. I'm talking about came up through you know strip clubs and he really played all the quote toilets as they call them. <laughs> Well, a comedy duo we have to talk about, I think, very influential uh, when they were together and, 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 and after they broke up. Mike Nichols and Elaine May, uh, a lot of their stuff was kind of prototypical for sketch comedy that's the standard these days and sort of the irony of David Letterman, etc. A lot of our longer, younger listeners can find their work on YouTube, and, and, and I checked it out recently, and I was amazed how sharp this stuff is five decades later. Exactly. It holds up beautifully. Uh, not all these comedians hold up. With Saw, you need to know all the references of the time, and that's, you know, if you're 30 years old, you're not going to know them. So, I mean, you can still admire his lightning wit and so on, but uh, but you won't know the subject matter. But uh, Nichols and May were talking about uh, universals, and they were talking about uh, them. they're uh, making fun of... Uh, uh, of, of pretentious intellectuals in which they considered themselves part of the, <laughs> uh, part and parcel, uh, but their their sketches 
they were really actors. They weren't stand-ups, but they had a great uh, comedy team. And they were really, uh, well, I was going to say one of a kind, two of a kind. And uh, if, you get, if you get their albums, you won't be disappointed. They are really sharp, as you say, still. It's too bad they didn't. They, they, they were only together a few years, maybe four or five years at Tops. And then they both went their separate ways. He went into directing, and she went into screenwriting and uh, stage writing and, and acting. We're speaking with author Gerald Nachman about his book, Seriously Funny, The Rebel Comedians, the 1950s and 1960s. Um, Comics tend to turn their difficulties in their upbringing and life and and their frustrations into funny material, but uh, I was struck by Nichols and May. They they were such oddballs uh, in a lot of ways. You cited in the book a time when Mike Nichols got fired as a Howard Johnson's waiter when he told a customer the ice cream flavor of the month was chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Typical Mike Nichols, yeah. Yeah, they, they were they were they were rebels in many ways. Yeah, <laughs> and yet here we have Nichols. He's one of the I guess one of the few people that's gotten an Oscar, an Emmy, a Tony, and a Grammy. And of course, as you mentioned, Elaine May turned out numerous well-received works after that. And I sort of think of him as an inspiration for young people who maybe since they don't fit in and frustrated by that. Well, she really never uh, developed the way he did. I mean, he became an enormous enormously famous and, and uh, successful as a, as a director and in films and on stage. And she, her, her career kind of got stunted. She did a few screenplays and she did a few uh, stage, pl- uh, stage plays, but never as successful as she was with, with, with Nichols. And, uh, and she's, she's much more of an oddball than he is. I don't think she's, <laughs> she's not granted an interview for, I don't know, 40 years or something. And uh, he's much more accessible, more social. And she's, she got, she's on her own wavelength. Well, I was showing my nephew at Christmas time some clips of A New Leaf with Elaine May and Walter Matthau, and that's one I can certainly want to throw out for listeners if they want to see her in action. Yeah, she, she's a good actress, and uh, she, she, she was a more natural actress than Nichols, who really worked as their, um, sort of as a straight man in their act, but, but, he, but, he, but he was a terrific uh, actor, sketch actor as well. And it's pretty evenly divided as the laughs, and they were just... They had a symbiosis that you very it's very rare, and you know the whole idea of comedy teams has totally vanished. Yeah, I don't know what the last comedy team was. Uh, and Chong, maybe I don't know. Yeah, but but the whole that whole phenomenon doesn't, and I don't know why. There's no reason, and it's kind of more interesting when you have people playing off each other than you have just one person standing on stage talking. Well, speaking of comedy teams, I know the longest lasting comedy team of all time now is the Smothers Brothers. Uh, a duo that, you know, might not strike people as revolutionary if you catch them performing today, and they still are performing. But they certainly made waves as big as anyone you talk about in the book with their uh, their famous battles with CBS over their TV show. Let's, uh, let's talk a bit about them. Well, I, I went to, they, uh, we all went, we all went to, I, I was a uh, college classmate of theirs at San Jose State, uh, and uh, I knew Tom slightly. He, we, I was an advertising major for a while, and he was, he was in an advertising class with me, and he was never there. And he, he would call me up and ask to ask what the assignment was. And so I, I knew him slightly. And they were they were just striking out on their own. They were they were performing a lot of campus gigs, and they were at a place called the Kerosene Club in San Jose, which was the the hot the hot nightclub in San Jose. And you know, I thought they were kind of you know I thought they were mildly amusing. I never was a huge fan of theirs, but I've since grown to appreciate them more and more. It was kind of one note, and and they, they didn't need to really move much beyond that, and they didn't. They didn't do. I think they did a couple of movies that didn't do any anything, and 
and they managed to keep it together. They were, of course, they they kind of went their separate ways for many years, and they they come back together in their in their in their uh, late years. It's amazing to me. I always think of them when I was very young, hearing about them down in San Jose when I probably not long after you you were there with them, but. Um, their risers meteoric. Next thing you know, they're they're I guess following Ed Sullivan on CBS, and then the White House is actually trying to censor them. Uh, well, yeah, because uh, one of the people at CBS, the CBS executive, was also was uh, was uh, was in the was in the Nixon circle inner circle, and so that's that that so that's kind of part of the backstory of why CBS came down on them hard. The guy named Paul Key, Paul Keys, I think his name was, and he was a Nixonite. And they were making fun of the Vietnam War and all kinds of stuff. And uh, so CBS kind of lowered the boom on them. But Tom was very stubborn. He wouldn't, uh, if you, there's a documentary on uh, on uh, PBS I've seen. Yes. Maybe you've seen it. Excellent, yeah. And, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, compromise at all. If he'd given in a little bit, I think he might have saved the show. But, but Tom was a stubborn guy and he wanted to do everything. He didn't want to take any, any guff from anybody. And, you know, to their credit, they they did they did what they wanted to do, but as a result, the show ended. It might have ended anyway. Well, uh, one character I want to talk about, quite quite remarkable among Rebel Comics this era, a guy who these days you can find uh, as a math professor at UC Santa Cruz, Tom Lehrer. He did these sharply funny songs that uh, that we certainly still use on this show. But at one point, he said, "That's enough," and walked away from it, which is which is which is quite unusual. Well, yeah, I can't think of uh, too many other performers. He calls himself the Greta Garbo of comedy because he <laughs> left at his height, and he's not teaching anymore. He's he's in his uh, he's close to eighty, I guess, by now. And but but he did teach a course in musical musical comedy at Santa Cruz, uh, UC Santa Cruz, for many years. And uh, the Shout Factory uh, has just put out a, a commemorative album of his stuff. I heard uh, on PBS the other day of all of his stuff, and you know it. His stuff also holds up pretty well. Some of it's a little bit been borrowed from heavily, so it doesn't seem quite as fresh as it did at the time. But he did not go into it as a performer. He he was a math professor at Harvard and MIT, and he was doing a lot of uh, faculty things. And he suddenly the word spread, and he became a kind of a phenomenon on college campuses in the in the in the fifties, and uh, put up a, spent about five hundred dollars of his own money to make a to make a ten inch. LP at the time, and it got a lot of airplay, and that's the factor in all these comedian success. There was a lot of airplay for comedy albums at the time, and it helped New- Bob Newhart's career and Shelley Berman's career and Tom Lear's career and uh, several other people. You wrote about so many people uh, in in the book, Steve Allen, Sid Caesar, Johnny Winters, Bob and Ray, um, uh, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, Bill Cosby. Everyone unique. They're all different. There's not one that's like another one. No, no. Is there is there one you you particularly are fond of? Well, I still have a special fondness for Saul, even though, as they say, a lot of his material you, you, you need to have lived through to understand today, because he was such a, a as I say, kind of a, a just his mind was just amazing to watch it hopscotch from th- subject to subject and. Uh, and he was very daring, and he didn't he didn't try to be daring, but he just was because he he would take on anything. And uh, uh, Nichols and May we've talked about, and also a team we haven't talked about that were only on the radio, Bob and Ray, yeah, whose stuff also holds up incredibly well, and uh, <laughs> you can still you can still buy it on on the internet, and it's worth worth getting. They were they were making fun of radio for a long time, and then they just switched to television, and they didn't have to switch very far because. 
some of the same blowhards and uh, phonies <laughs> on TV that were on radio. And, and they would do parodies of uh, soap operas and just everything. They were amazing, and I, I, was, I have a special place in my heart for them. I'm laughing because we've used the Komodo dragon bit more than once on oh, this program. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the slow talker, the president of the slow talkers. I can't find the slow talkers. I've been wanting to do that one. That still cracks me up. I mean, their stuff is amazingly uh, durable. Well, another guy I want to just make mention of, because I remember him as being a little kid. My parents loved him. I was just, you know, I, I wasn't, couldn't appreciate a lot of it, but... If there's any guy out there who demonstrates that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, it's probably Ernie Kovacs. Everybody's imitated what he did on TV. Oh, he was very much uh, one of a kind, and he, he before he's still ahead of his time. The, the stuff he was doing, I guess you can get it. I think it's available. You can buy it. Uh, some of his little sketches are very surreal, and he was he was making fun of television and television uh, uh, conventions and. Uh, and it's, it's, it's impossible to describe what he did, but he was just a parodist and a satirist, and he was a surrealist and everything, and there was nobody like him. And he, he really never made it big the other way other people, because he was a little over, he was maybe more than a little over the heads of the average <laughs> TV viewer at the time. They didn't know what the heck he was up to. But I think he would play better now, because we're all maybe a little more savvy than we were in the 50s. Sometimes his, his, his work is, is shown around and, and on campuses and things, and I hope people really will check it out. There was a time at UC Davis years ago that uh, we had an exhibit of his stuff, and oh, really? God, it was great. Oh. oh, it was great. Oh, yeah, well, that's good to know that he's still, he's still remembered by some anyway. Before we leave the topic, we should mention a couple notable women in particular uh, made a, quite, a, quite a name for themselves in comedy, Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers, and they're still at it many years later. I, I think Diller is finally retired. She's 92. Wow. And uh, she had a long, long career, and she was, she, was, she was the first, and I remember seeing her in the 50s. I remember her coming to the college I was going to, Oakland City College, and she came, and I thought, who is this woman? She seems so weird and wacky. And, uh, I'd never seen a woman comedian, and most people hadn't either. I mean, there were a few around, but not a lot, and she's the first that really broke through into the mainstream, and uh, she had very good material, great timing, and just had a, a, a real polish to her, and she, she hated being a housewife. She she made fun of being a mom and she made fun of housewives and you know at the time it didn't seem I didn't think necessarily radical but as you look back on it it really was and I guess final question I'd have about uh, trying to just pick one of the many you talked about uh, I guess we should probably go with the guy we think of as a film director and a film actor but in his own day was fantastic stand up comic Woody Allen yeah a lot of people who've grown up watching Woody Allen movies don't even realize he had a big big stand up career. You know, he was as unusual as anybody. He was a total intellectual. He, thought he came on like a real dweeb, and uh, and uh, and at first he was a writer. He didn't want to really perform, but 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 his but his managers decided he when he would read material to them, they they would break up his delivery. He just had a funny manner about him, and you know he and he developed rather quickly into a very polished stand-up comedian. And uh, all the all the twitches and ticks and uh, nervousness uh, that he exhibited really worked in his favor, because the material was so strong and it was so unusual, and again, a little bit surreal. And uh, he had, he was a big uh, name in stand up for I don't know five, five six seven years until he went into movies. And he's another guy whose stuff, if you listen to it now, it's still pretty good. Oh yeah, I think it is very, very good. He hasn't hasn't lost anything. Clever is clever, and it it really withstands time. 
Well, we've been talking about the book Seriously Funny, The Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 1960s with author Gerald Nachman. And Mr. Nachman, it's it's you know, it's been a pleasure again. We, I think we're, I consider that we're, we're two down, one to go, and I hope you'll come back in a few months and talk about Raised on Radio. I'd love to, and I, and I do appreciate the, uh, the attention, of course. Thank you very much. Thank you again, sir, and I hope I'll call you in a few months and we can talk about the, your wonderful book on, on old-time radio. I'm ready. That's, that's the one closest to my heart because I, I grew up with that. Excellent. Okay, thanks. Another big news story of the year concerned the ecumenical council in Rome known as Vatican II. Among the things they did in an attempt to make the church more commercial <laughs> was to introduce the vernacular into portions of the mass to replace Latin and to widen somewhat the range of music permissible in the liturgy. But I feel that if they really want to sell the product in, uh, <laughs> in this secular age, what they ought to do is to redo some of the liturgical music in popular song forms. I have a modest example here. It's called The Vatican Rag. First you get down on your knees, fiddle with your rosaries, bow your head with great respect and genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. Whatever steps you want, if you have cleared them with the pontiff, everybody say his own Kyrie eleison, doing the Vatican rag. Get in line in that processional, step into that small confessional. There the Who's got religion I'll tell you if your sin's original If it is, try playing it safer Drink the wine and chew the wafer Two, four, six, eight Time to transubstantiate So get down upon your knees Fiddle with your rosaries Bow your head with great respect And genuflect, genuflect, genuflect